0: Welcome to the City Collective Church Podcast. We believe we are better together and exist to create space for everyone to discover life in Jesus. We hope that in today's message, you encounter the heart of God and are challenged and inspired in your relationship with Christ. Good morning. Happy uh, Spring Forward Sunday. Every year it comes, and I think to myself, I'm going to go to bed one, one hour earlier, and I never do. It's always the case. And so in some ways, it feels like uh, my least favorite Sunday of the year because <laughs> I lose an hour of sleep. So say, say what you want about it. But it, it feels a little bit different because we're able to be together. We are um, obviously uh, in the middle of, of March, uh, February kind of flew by and now we're in the middle of our, our Lent series, second week of our series we walk through the gospel according to John. Uh, I, I know that I've appreciated the ability to talk about different things. One of the things we like to do as a church is, is deal with these different ideas throughout the year and approach them differently. So we started off in January, we talked about mental health and in February relationships and and here in this uh, Lent series as we go to Easter, it's it's looking at the the words of John and and the story of Jesus and and taking it from a a head-on perspective. Um, We want to see what the writer has to say about the person of Jesus and what that means for us as as individuals, as followers of Christ, as as people who want to perhaps know this Jesus that we have encountered in an experience or, or a relationship or in our upbringing. That perhaps it could be more than just a nice idea, but something that really takes root in our hearts. Last week, uh, we opened up with John 1, started with the prologue, uh, and we talked about the idea of there's more that meets the eye, and that when God speaks, John says creation happens, and, and it's when God speaks to creation, it's not just words on a page that come to life, but it's actually a person that comes forward, and that person is Jesus, John 1.14 says "The Word became flesh, and that means that when God wanted to say what God was all about, God came into our midst. Now, the Gospel of John, before we dive into John two this morning, is a little bit different than the other gospels. It's, uh, it, it doesn't have all of the exact same approach of, of parables and stories. in fact, uh, John sounds a lot like its writer. It, it's deeply poetic. And even the words of Jesus are are deeply poetic. And there's always this underlying connotation to the actions that Jesus takes within the gospel of John. Uh, even when he works miracles, you feel like he's thinking maybe perhaps less about the exact needs of the moment and more about why he is here on earth as a whole. So there, as we even read this piece of uh, text together, I would encourage you to, to consider and to open up your mind to the possibility of what if. What, what could John be talking about in this moment? And what would Jesus perhaps be actually trying to communicate? And then we can open it up together. He, he does this over and over again. When he, when he feeds a big crowd of hungry people, he says, I'm the bread of life. When he raises Lazarus from the the dead, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He says, I am the gate. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and life. He says over and over again the different ways he is to us. Not just simply in action, but in word. There's, There's a lot that's going on. Because Jesus is for John, someone that has captured his imagination and has been someone that he's not just known in his relationship or in his interactions, but he's fallen in love with. And he wants us to feel that same way and to put our trust in Jesus like he has. So let's read this together. Let's go into John chapter 2. Uh, we're going to read the first 11 verses. You can follow along on the screen. John chapter 2, it starts off with this wedding feast. Uh, and the wedding feast as a little bit of context, is really big in ancient times. It's probably the biggest day of your life, your wedding, especially within that Eastern context. And there is a massive social disaster that takes place. They run out of wine. It's a big deal. The feast would always last for a couple of days, so to have wine go absent in the middle of it, it's a problem. And so that's where we find ourselves in this incident. So it says uh, in verse 1, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? It's a harsh way to talk to your mom. But Jesus replied that way. My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, oh, so graciously, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew." Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he received his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this is John chapter 2. Uh, Question for you as we as we begin this morning: How do you feel about first impressions uh, when you walk into a, a room and you don't know people? How, how does that make you feel? A little anxious? A little uncertain? uncertain how people are going to respond to you, maybe a little uncertain of yourself. First impressions can be a little bit debilitating for some, and they are lifeblood for others. They are like new people. I want to talk to them all the time. Anyway, I'm going to make a good first impression, and they dive right on in. First impressions got a lot of different things going on, and it's not just how you bring yourself in that first impression. It might be some ways in which people had an impression of you prior. For example, my the first impression that that my now mother-in-law had of myself was, I was going to go meet Adriana's family for the first time, and uh, little did I know that she had already set a first impression for me before my first impression could be made. Uh, She she might have mentioned to her mother before I had even met her one time, that this is the man I'm going to marry. First impression, set. (laughs) I come in, I'm ready to make a good impression. Firm handshake. Key, eye contact. Don't make eye contact when the mom feels that way right off the bat because her eye contact said, who are you and what are you doing here? And so that was our first impression at that moment. Thankfully, we moved forward and we're, we're great now. But that is a story that we will always hold near and dear to our hearts. First impressions. There's a lot that's going on. Uh, th- there is a way in which our first impressions can like impact the way that we have relationships later on. It's a way that we, we can like play them out. I could have maybe treated that differently. I need, a, I need a do-over of my first impression. Or you know how important the situation is that you're going into Therefore, you're going to prepare yourself. What am, going to, what am I going to say? What am I going to wear? How am I going to say it? Who is going to be around me? Because we want to frame it in such a way that we can direct the narrative that plays out in that situation. Fair enough? I think we all have a, a manner in which we deal with first impressions. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell says this. He says, we don't know where our first impressions come from or precisely what they mean. So we don't always appreciate their fragility. Uh, What you do, I think, reveals a lot about who you are in those moments. When you enter an environment, sometimes a first impression can happen to you, but do we have a sense of self-awareness of what's actually taking place in the moment? Do we ask ourselves a simple question, like, what did I come to do? Or do we simply enter spaces? I I would contend that an awareness of self actually leads to an intentionality of action at the beginning of our narrative, we can see that there's a lot going on and we can ask a lot of broad questions. But when we consider the story of Jesus told here by John, I think the question can arise right off the bat based upon how we see things in John 1, what has Jesus come to do? Because John 1, the prologue, it's this profound piece of poetic narrative. It, it, it captures your imagination. There, there's love and beauty poured into it about this person who has come to seek and to save us. So you, you would almost wonder, like, what has Jesus actually come to do based upon that opening prologue in itself? And it, it might leave you a question like, what would he have as his first impression? Uh, An individual by the name of Reynolds Price, he's a professor at Duke University who wrote a book on analyzing the Gospels. He's a professor of English literature, and he wrote a book analyzing the Gospel of John in particular, and and this is what he says. He says, if you're inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, who would invent for his inaugural sign of Jesus' career a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment? Or put it this way, Jesus Christ uses all of his almighty power to wipe egg from the faces of two befuddled teenagers. Because that's who you might find in this scenario. This, this story in, in John chapter 2 is in many ways Jesus' first impression. And it's the beginning of him answering the question, what has he come to do? It's just perhaps in a way that we didn't expect. Now, uh, the key to understanding this narrative begins actually at the end of the text that we've read in in verse 11, where it says that this is not just a miracle, it is, but it's also called a, a sign, it's also called a symbol, something that signifies something else, This is the beginning of Jesus' career and the beginning of his public ministry. And I want you to think of it this way. If you were a a, a candidate for an office or you were a businessman trying to start a brand or, or you were launching a campaign, the very first presentation that you might provide would be carefully curated. It would be controlled exactly what you'd want to say. Everything about the environment, everything is conveying the message of what you are all about. And then Mary, in our story, comes up to Jesus and says, it has been a disaster. They're out of wine. This is a bad situation. We're only halfway through this party, and there's no wine left. And Jesus responds, woman, why do you involve me? Cold. Uh, And and it kind of stands out to us in this translation, but within the Greek, it, it probably is better translated along the lines of what is it? that it is to you and to me. He's actually talking about it from their perspective because they're both guests at a wedding. What what matter does it have if there isn't wine for everyone else, if they're simply a guest at this wedding? I think this is a good question on a human level. Jesus and Mary are both there, and they're they're not expected to, to deal with all the details of it. If you go to a wedding and they run out of wine... It's the responsibility of the host. But Jesus says something here that points to what he's trying to communicate overall. He says, my hour has not yet come. Now, in the Gospel of John, anytime the language of hour is used, it actually points forward to his death. If you read the whole book of John, and if you read it carefully, you'll notice that every time it says Whenever Jesus is talking about the hour, he's actually talking about his death. John 7, John 8, John 13, on and on. And whenever hour is used, he's talking about his death. So when Mary comes up and says, what a disaster, they've run out of wine. Jesus says, woman, why are you telling me this? I'm not ready to die. It's, it's, it's an odd response. It's an odd response. But for him to say, this is, my hour is not yet come, he's saying, I'm not ready to die. Jesus has not just referenced this practical problem at hand, but somehow he's referring to the hour of his passion, uh, of, of the death to come. And the question that we are left with then is, is, why does he go there? And how does he get maybe from A to Z? I think it's fair to say that it's possible that Mary knew that Jesus wasn't maybe exactly normal, <laughs> Because she then goes to his servants, doesn't ask a question about it, and says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. She doesn't get upset with him. And she recognized that he's saying, you want me to do something about the situation at hand, but I've come to do something that is beyond. This is his first impression. Within the Eastern context, a wedding was the most significant event that they would have had not just for them as individuals, but for their family. Guests were invited. Plans were put together. And everything was orchestrated around making sure it was a massive celebration. And for wine to not be present halfway through it would have been a massive bit of shame that would have been placed upon that family. And so... Just like what Jesus says, uh, I'm not ready to die. Jesus is also saying, you want me to do something about their shame. And then a feast is isn't simply a place to interact and and have a good time. This was a celebration for community. This was a celebration for family. This was meant to be something that brought joy. In, In this moment, Jesus is looking past his mom. He's looking past the bride and the bridegroom and past the current wedding celebration and past the moment at play. And he's saying that I have actually come to deal with the shame of the world and I've come to bring joy and I'm going to have to die to do it. When he says, my hour has not yet come, he's pointing forward. And and I think John wants us to look at this specifically in the Old Testament because the answer lies in this idea of the messianic tradition in, in in ancient Judaism. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 25, we'll put the verse on the screen, verses six to eight, it says this. It says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and he will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. It's saying that when the age of salvation comes, there will be a feast of fine wine, of wine on the leaves of the well refined. And all the nations will come to this feast and when they drink of this wine and eat at this sacrificial banquet they will experience a freedom from all shame and reproach that they have experienced in their life. In this practical moment, Jesus is pointing to his greater purpose. The the language of feast is so common in the Old Testament that even for those who would have been present of a Jewish heritage, they would have been aware of a manner in which Jesus spoke. This was called the Messianic Banquet. And it's characterized by an abundance of wine. So when they say they have no wine and they invite Jesus as a guest to solve the problem, there is this implicit, subtle request made by Mary to actually reveal his identity. To actually begin his ministry. And Jesus is saying that his time has not yet come. He's not going to die right there at the feast But I can point forward to a time to come. And you know what? Even as I point forward to a time to come, I'll take of the take care of the issue that is present in the now because that is who Jesus is. And I want you to hear that this morning that in all that is taking place, we need to have a perspective and a vision that God has come to the world through Jesus and has made a way for all of humanity to be redeemed and to be made new in his image. And there is a time to come of a new earth and there is beauty within that and Jesus is pursuing that time to come but just as much he's pursuing the time in the here and the now, in the moments of our current shame, in our current sin, in our current failure, in our brokenness, there is just as much renewal taking place then as there is now. And and, and at the banquet, they were given this, this very gift of pointing forward the beginning of his ministry, a sign of who he was, as well as being cared for in their current moment of shame. I want us to take note as well that it is a wedding feast. I think everyone loves a good wedding. You get to celebrate with friends and with family. Maybe there's a toonie bar and a dance floor. Maybe you're enjoying yourself in, in, with All the different aspects of of the ceremony, the in-between, the banquet. It it is a party unto itself. And we think we get it right. But then you go to some places in the more Eastern culture and it is not a single day. It is a week-long celebration. And it is a joyful one. When the Bible talks about this wedding feast, it is also communicating to us that we are a people who are invited to actually experience the fullness of joy that this is this is a celebration that we're invited into on a consistent basis that in fact why has Jesus what has Jesus come to do it is to bring us joy Joy in relationship with who God is, with, in relationship with one another, and joy in the fullness of constant celebration that extends past what we might experience here on earth. Do you notice that joy is often a wonderful thing that we might have in the here and now in moments on earth? It's more intermittent. And and there's there's flashes of it, and we crave it, and we we try and manufacture it and present it to others. But the promise that Jesus brings is that I have come for the joy that was set before him, he goes to the cross. And for that joy that's set before him, it's so that there's relationship between him and us. And if that relationship is existing, and if he gets that joy, we get that joy. And that's what Jesus has come to do, so that you might have joy joy in the fullness of life it it, it is at the foundation of what jesus has come to do and he sets that as his first impression and remember what we said in your first impression you're trying to communicate a message of who you are and perhaps why that matters the old testament loves the image of a wedding and it also does this in the Old Testament. It depicts God as the bridegroom of the people. And this is just a beautiful representation of what God's heart is towards us. That God is not simply seeking a relationship of a king to his subjects, but he wants a love relationship. And a a love relationship that's so profound as one within a marriage that God identifies as the bridegroom in the Old Testament. And then Jesus shows up and he comes along in the gospel and he says things like this. He was with his disciples and his disciples are accused of why aren't you fasting on, on a specific day. And he responds to them by saying, why should the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is still with him? And, and he's, he's getting to this, simply to this point, he calls himself the bridegroom, fully knowing the connection of what that means according to the Bible. And John understands this theme as well, because if you get to the end of the New Testament, to the book of Revelation, what is written by John is he depicts the end of all things, and it works in coordination with Isaiah 25. In, in Revelation 21, verse 2, he writes... Then I saw the holy city of Jerusalem come out of heaven, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice saying, Blessed are those invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. This is Jesus' first impression. Not to simply do a nice thing for people, but to point to his ultimate glory, to the wedding feast. To the reconciliation of his people to himself he's pointing to you and to i that you might experience joy and a love that he desires for you as if in a marriage relationship he's saying i want it to be like a bridegroom to his bride i want you to hear this that It's like a bridegroom to his bride that I'm here because I love you. I'm here because I'm committed to you. I am with you. I am for you. And I want you to experience joy in our relationship at all times. This is the first impression that Jesus is bringing to his ministry. Notice that there there are no, no individuals who are fighting demons in this moment. There's no one to raise from the dead in this moment. There's no massive healing that takes place. There is a pointing of who he is in all moments, but in the time to come and why that matters in the here and now. Because if I know that he is preparing a feast before me, I know his intentions for me in the here and the now. Sometimes we we get to those minute ideas of like, this is what God wants for me to experience. Or this in the here and now. Or this in the here and now. Overlying all of it, God wants you to experience joy in your life. And it might seem wildly simplistic, but that is the first impression Jesus wants to bring. Joy in the life that you live flowing through a relationship with him. Because this is what a feast does. And to experience joy as God intends is to have a revelation of Jesus. And to have a revelation of Jesus should lead us to a place of proliferating and and sharing joy as if it's a fruit in all that we do. To make joy a practice within our personal life, within our community, within our relationships. And to make it part of all that we do. Joy is not only in the future but actually in the here and the now. It's a deep heart fulfillment right now. This is what the Bible reveals over and over. And in this story, it's revealed again. And not joy for joy's sake, but joy that overwhelms the burdens that we currently carry. The the guarantee of life is that at some point, we will encounter a moment where we do not have enough. Strength, love, money, we will fall short in some way. And when we fall into those moments where we do not have enough, we always encounter shame. I am found lacking and I can do nothing about it. And shame wishes to fill that gap. But the purpose of Christ when he comes into the world is to overwhelm that shame with joy. That in the recognition that I do not have enough, I actually experience joy because I realize that Christ has come to fulfill all the ways that I am not. And he does so in this story without any recognition, without any big sign that says, look at what I did, I'm here and I'm at work. He simply changes the water into the wine and he actually gives credit to the one who did nothing at all. So the one who would experience the shame in this story of not having enough, Has his shame turned to joy by the one who comes to bring joy in every situation. And that was the first impression that Jesus wishes to give to his world. In in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, when when Samwise Gamgee, he wakes up in Rivendale. Rescued from the fires of Mount Doom, and he wakes up and he, he actually sees Gandalf. He sees Gandalf still alive. I'm sorry if I'm spoiling the movie for you. You should have already watched it. That's on you. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead. But then he says, Is everything sad going to come untrue? And I think that's beautiful because I think that's ultimately what Jesus is doing. Where he's bringing to us to a place where every tear is wiped away. Where there is a new earth. Where it's a renewal of the world. Where everything sad is being made untrue. Because that's what he's come to do. And if you think about joy, it's like those intermittent moments. We're, we're given that in the here and now, because Jesus says, I am the Lord of the feast, and I came to bring joy. His first miracle, his first sign is his calling card. But let's look at it this way as well. Why is Jesus kind of grumpy? Because he's thinking of something else. Uh, let's go back to weddings. Why, why do single people sometimes like love weddings or think about weddings? And some of you are like, it's because of that Toonie bar. Yeah, no, it's not that. Sometimes it is. But sometimes, I think when, we, when people sit at weddings, you can kind of catch them with this, with this funny look in their eye. And they're staring off into the distance, perhaps. And they're thinking about what their wedding might be. And I think, in, in, in some sense, this, is, this might be what Jesus is like in this moment he's at this feast and there's, there's this lacking and he's thinking about this joyous day to come where his people might fall into his arms and drink of the rivers of delight. And then he's aware that in order for that to take place, in order for the joy that he has come to bring to come into place, what is he going to have to do? Well, he's going to have to die. My hour has not yet come. Because you see, Jesus is very, very aware of his death. When he's raising Lazarus, he's thinking about his own death. When he's hearing at his, hear at his wedding feast, he's thinking about his own death. Mark 8, he talks about his own death. Mark 9, he says, by the way, everybody, I'm going to die. In Mark 10, he says, by the way, death is coming. And, and the disciples, in many ways, they focused on his life and they were on that journey with him. But they act foolishly often within their journey with Jesus in his life. Because their focus is on that. But everything changes upon the death and resurrection of Christ. See, Jesus, he solves the problem at the wedding at Cana. And in doing so, he performs a sign that points forward to what he will accomplish in his death when his hour finally does come. Because he chooses these vessels... And he, and he says, fill them with water. And they, they were, within the Jewish tradition, these, these purification vessels. It's where people would come and they would clean themselves. They would make themselves clean with this water. And Jesus, he chooses these vessels and he empties them out and he puts a new water in it. And doesn't just put new water in it, he wants to turn that new water into a new wine. And, and this, this story of, of joy to come and, and shame being overcome is not simply left at that. It's, it's to say that all the ways in which we are pursuing to purify and cleanse ourselves is done by simply being in proximity, in relationship with Jesus. That Jesus comes in and he takes all the ways that they were making themselves clean and he says, I'm going to give you something better. Something that doesn't just make you a little bit cleaner, but something that actually brings you joy. A little more wine in a wedding. And not just a little bit of wine, an abundance of wine. Because it says six of these 30 gallon, this is a lot of wine that's present. And this even connects with the story that's at play. In the Old Testament, it constantly talks about that the age of salvation comes with an abundance of wine. And this is because joy is the the connection that we see in this age of salvation. When Jesus comes, there is a death that is coming. But when Jesus comes, there is a joy that is promised. And that's a lot of joy. We as readers, we know that the bridegroom of the festival had nothing to do with what was provided. That it was all Jesus. And that Jesus in this moment, he actually takes the role of the bridegroom. And he gives the wine. In Amos uh, 9.11, it says, In that day, I will rise, raise up the booth of David that has fallen and the mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. In Joel 3.18, it says, In that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. This first impression has layers to it. An identity has been hinted at, a savior. A purpose has been signaled, death a substitution has been made, Jesus entering into death to defeat it, and an invitation is given. Taste and see the new life I wish to give to you. This is more than simply Jesus being an example, and this is what John does so beautifully. I think so often when we think of the life of Jesus, we think of it as simply an example in which we are to follow. But if Jesus is just being a nice guy in this moment, then That is all that's taking place. There isn't all these layers to it. This is John writing and saying, this is not simply about what he does, but him being who he is. If Jesus came simply to live, he is an example, and then we find God by trying to be like Jesus. But if Jesus came to die, he doesn't simply come as an example, he comes as a savior. And then we find God by placing our trust in him. Otherwise, he would be like every other founder of every other major religion. They all come to show you how to live, and this is how you get to God. But Jesus, he comes, and he says, no, I'm actually God come to, coming to you. And I don't come to show you how to save yourself. I've come to save you. This is, this is the purification that's taking place. You don't have to do it yourself. I've come to give you a new wine, a better way. That all of our practices of following Jesus are not meant to be our old water that we're using to make ourselves clean, but they are, we are met, invited to taste and to drink and to enjoy the new wine of Jesus that is given freely, that protects us from the shame in the lives that we experience and wishes us to partake in it so that we might have the joy that He came to bring. This is our invitation. And in in a culture and in a society where so much of what we do is about striving and achieving and receiving based upon how much we have put in, Jesus flips the script for us every single day when he invites us with this beautiful sensory language of taste and see. Operate in the natural ways that you are human. (laughs) In the senses that you are given. Taste and see what I have come to give to you. Operate from that foundation. Know who I am first and foremost. See the gift that I give to you. Know that I have come so that you might experience the joy and fullness of life. And then live your life from that joy. Live your life from that foundation. And when shame comes to invade at your doorstep, know that that joy is more than enough to overwhelm it. For each of us this morning, there are ways in our life that we feel we are not enough. And it is our feast that we are at. And we are expecting everything to go perfectly because we have put the work in. We have done what we need to do. And then this shame that we don't even know is coming shows up at our doorstep. And Jesus wishes to be the one who deals with the shame before we even know it's coming. And rather place on us the joy that comes by his actions, not by ours. Because who gets celebrated in this story? The bride and the bridegroom of the feast that was lacking a sufficient amount of wine. The bride and bridegroom who would have experienced shame and guilt for themselves and for their family. But yet Jesus, without them even knowing, goes before them. Just like without us even knowing, Jesus goes before us. If you have felt... Like shame has been at your doorstep over and over again because you have heard the language of our culture that says you are not enough or you don't have enough or you don't do enough or enough is something that feels like it is ringing throughout all that you do and shame invades your heart. Know this, know that Jesus does not look at you and see that. He simply sees an opportunity for his joy to be found in your life. John 2 is the first impression of who Jesus is. And if you're here this morning and you need to be reminded of that first impression or know that that is the impression that he gives, know this. That Jesus came with death in mind so that you might have joy in the here and the now. That Jesus came with the perspective of what he needed to do so that you could have the fullness of life in the here and now. That Jesus came so that your your shame would not overwhelm you but that his joy might be the foundation of your life. In everything that we do, we are invited to experience that over and over again. And wherever you might find yourself on your journey of faith, that is available to you today. And it comes with just a simple response of, Jesus, I would love to place my trust in something beyond myself. I have found myself lacking, and I don't know where to go. I don't know where to turn what if we could actually have that relationship with Christ that fulfills all the ways that we fought, find we, fought, that we fall short? One of the practices that we see in this story, a feast of eating and drinking, I think is actually a real spiritual practice for us in our everyday lives. I think there's something beautiful and divine about the table, about being a people that if you are saying to yourself, well, yeah, I know who God is. That, that, that's wonderful, but the sensory language of the Bible, of the Old Testament, is saying that I know that you know who God is, but I want you to experience it, actually. Taste and see. So maybe that's eating and drinking with someone who, who doesn't know Jesus, not for the purpose of simply, like, just telling them about Jesus, but sharing in community and in life and, and actually showing and demonstrating the love of God in those moments of eating and drinking, Maybe it's eating and drinking with community to to focus in on your relationship with God and doing it alongside fellow followers of Christ. And maybe it's eating and drinking in the presence of God and doing something like we're going to do today and having communion and having our eyes and our minds fixed upon the one who has come to seek and save those who are lost. So would you do this with me? Would you stand to your feet? The very first miracle of Jesus was a sign of what he came to do to bring joy. And some of you this morning are thirsting for just a taste of that joy. It was a sign of how he came to do it, to die. And some of us need to experience that unconditional, sacrificial love of God. And it was a sign of who he has always been, the bridegroom. Giving us the very best, even when we didn't deserve it. So we partake this morning remembering Jesus, the one who gave himself freely to the cross so that we might experience the fullness of life, joy in its complete presentation. That at the table with his disciples, he sat and he took took the bread. You can peel off the top layer if you haven't already. And he grabbed the bread and He says, this is my body, broken for you. So let's partake together. Body of Christ, broken for you. After breaking the bread and partaking in in it together, you can peel off that next little bit of film. Jesus took the cup of wine. Let's see. He says, This is my blood poured out for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. Blood of Christ poured out for you. Jesus, we just thank you for who you are. Thank you for that. From the very beginning, you you brought yourself so that we might have more than what we have. That all the ways in which we fall short are not simply overcome by our good deeds or our good will. But they're overcome by your presence in our lives. Just as you were with them at that wedding feast, covering the shame that was to come. And replacing it with the joy for all to partake in. May that be our story this morning. For the shame that we experience in our everyday lives. We just pray that they might be overcome by the joy that all might partake in. We pray against the voices that might say that we're not enough. That would say that we are lacking in all the different ways and would, would wish for us to hear that and experience guilt or shame or a more of a try-hard attitude or to, to fall into a habit, habit and practice of striving instead of resting in you and tasting and seeing who you are. I just pray that today might be a beginning of the switch. That you, this might be a revelation in our minds. That every time shame comes into our minds, we might invite joy to overcome it. A joy not simply based upon our strength, but a joy based upon yours. For the joy that was set before you, you went to the cross. The joy of relationship, the, the, the joy of victory over death. The joy that is available to us here this morning. As we commit our lives to you, as we, as we move forward into this week and practices and our habits and, and our everyday, the, the mundane activities that we engage in. I just pray right now that there might be more to the story. That we would have an awareness of who you are and awareness of self. And with the, that awareness, we would bring intentionality to our actions in every space. Transform us from the inside out. Give us creative imaginations to eat and drink in our practical ways so that we can really be living out what that is to taste and see the goodness of God. May we look more like you. Thank you for the gift of your word and for this morning. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope it challenged, encouraged, and inspired you in your walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep up with City Collective, make sure to check us out on Instagram and Facebook at City Collective Church. Have a great week.